This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 336, recording on Friday, October 25th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here's Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Full fall. It's fall everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I forget about this every year, that late October to Thanksgiving... I think it's my favorite time of year. Yes. This is my favorite time of year. I agree. And I don't think it's recency bias. I just, school, the kids' school stuff, there's activities that are fun. It's not too cold out, not too hot about. Like October's nice because there's not a lot of, usually you're not traveling. You're just kind of in your life enjoying the weather and the seasons changing um, all the way through Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, so it's like magic. having a, a pleasant fall. It the is. like post post summer pre holiday is really nice and yeah. yeah it's cool enough to like start cooking hearty foods that's right break out the slow and cooker yeah I roasted a chicken mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago that was you know very exciting wearing don't pants that go all like the way the to my first ankles. of the month like they get the, don't you like roast chicken <laughs> is that seasonal roast chickening that's a verb apparently it's made up but don't you do that throughout the year or is that really a fall I, winter thing for me it's a cold weather thing i don't want to roast a chicken okay. when it's you know 104 degrees here in july um mm. so by the time and i cook almost every day like i love to cook so by the time that actual fall weather shows up i'm like completely over all the things i cook in the summer and all the summer vegetables (laughs) and the like light pastas and things that are just you know not heavy and hearty and i'm ready for the transition so some of it is just the change but also the like i fully my like version of going to church is like i you know roast a chicken and listen to aretha franklin and like thank the universe that fall has come again Um, and Mm. it's it's here. Mostly I'm driven indoors and I can't grill anymore. That's how I know my mm. cooking needs. I need to get a slow cooker out. It's too cold. It's dark and cold to grill. So I, I gotta <laughs> do my inside things that I know how to do. There have definitely been, we're um, year round grillers here if, now that this is the thing that yeah. we're talking about. But like I have grilled um, in like Ugg snow boots and a headlamp. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth yeah, it. There's something about the. There's something about the, it's 5.30 and raining in Portland that I don't want to grill. It's like, (laughs) I'm coming inside. My migration patterns, I don't migrate anymore based on the seasons, but it's just indoor or outdoor slowly cooking things over heat. Yeah, it's just, it's like, it's not quite hibernating. It's just move everything inside. I get it. My, you know, my like, I have a clear memory of my dad and this is like the most Midwestern suburban dad thing ever, like standing in our garage with both of the garage doors up and the grill moved into the garage (laughs) because he, the thing he wanted to do that night was grill. And like, by God, he was going to grill, even though it was raining and there was maybe going to be a tornado. (laughs) Hmm. You know, sometimes you, you need a hamburger on the grill. It's there's true. Nothing, there's nothing quite like. We have a chocolate. fire pit. We just moved, and we have a fire pit in our new place. It's it's now fire pit season. Like it, mm-hmm. I could tell this morning, I was like, "Oh, I could sit around a fire." I was like, oh, oh yeah. I have a fire pit. 
it's full of leaves, and I don't know how fire works exactly. Um, but I'm going to try that this way. I mean, I know in general, but like how to start a fire. It's been a while since I was a Cub Scout, um, and I'm not one of those like let's lighter fluid it until it blows up so hot that it just spontaneously combusts and everything. I need I need a good um, how to build a fire. It feels like one of those books that was in vogue for a while that was like how to do very simple things. Remember, mm-hmm. like how to sharpen a pencil. Wasn't that a thing yeah. for a while? I feel like how to build yes. a fire would be like a pseudo Zen type of like crossover inspirational book. Maybe I should get on that, <laughs> do a pitch and get an advance for how to build a fire. Are there going to be yeah. s'mores around your fire pit? Because I feel like that's essential. That's contractually obligated. You can get a fine actually in Portland okay. if you don't have s'mores if you have an open fire pit. Just you know, making they, they sure that check. we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's interesting. My my cooking around a fire pit runs out after s'mores and hot dogs. Like, what's the third thing I could make over an open flame? I got nothing. I, there's there is no third thing. There's two things. There's hot dogs and s'mores. Two food groups. There's two fire pit food groups. Anyway, fire to a sponsor and like groups. may try to get regroup, regroup, regroup a little bit. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I got follow up. Uh, follow up first from um, the half baked idea shows. People seem to like that. I'm not surprisingly, people wanted to add complexity to mm. the um, uh, libraries one. You know, basically the sliding scale library idea. And it wasn't it wasn't you're an idiot stuff, which I'm sure I'll get at some point. One was to remember, or maybe if people didn't know, I think it was it was it really was pitched this way. It was really pitched in a. I'm not sure if people know that in a lot of places, library funding is pegged to property taxes. And if you own a place, and the more expensive the place you own is, you you do pay more in the library system. I guess, mm. and that's also just true if you have more in general, you tend to get taxed more. But that actually, it's it's it is pegged in a lot of places, not true everywhere, um, to property taxes, which do scale pretty consistently um, with income. So that's a wrinkle to put in there as well. Okay. Um, people saying that they would be, I think that the two people that wrote in about like, would they pay if they, and they do, they, they feel like they would fall into a category of person that would fall outside the free card system. Right. And mm-hmm. the, the reaction there was enthusiastic. Um, so that's interesting as well, just, just to hear about, but I, I thought it was worth remembering, like, like schools in most places, the funding for libraries comes from property taxes, which is pegged to, to really wealth. I guess not everything is like that. There, there's some, there's a couple things here. Well, like the DMV, you don't get a break on your DMV fees if you fall below a certain income line, do you? Do you know off the top of your head? I, well, I don't know why you would know this. But don't have any idea. 
Yeah. I try to know as little about the DMV as possible. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, so that's one bit of follow-up. The next bit of follow-up is a little bit longer in the tooth, um, just because we haven't got to it, about BBC4 and the BBC4's uh, custom abridged um, airing of the, an audio version of, the, of Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. A lot of people wanting to explain to us how the BBC works and that the, the various stations do have different you know, lanes, so to speak. I guess BBC One is like pop, um, and then from there it goes through BBC Five, but BBC Four is spoken word that's not news or sports talk. So there's a lot of audiobook stuff that happens there, generally speaking. There's a long-standing tradition of this kind of thing happening. And a little birdie who's worked in the subsidiary rights in audio in the UK mm. said that they're pretty sure the BBC paid not an enormous sum, but a substantial sum for the rights to do this. So it's not, and it's it's considered by the publisher a double win because you get the income, but you also do get the marketing. They think of it as it's not, um, it doesn't cannibalize sales that people hear it on the radio. They get some money. Some people are going to hear it that never would have, but then some people go out and buy um, or otherwise listen to the the whole version or they want the book version or something else like that. So they, the publisher, it's like one of the great placements in the UK they said, which I thought um, was interesting too. In some cases, they do audio that isn't paid for, um, but falls under, I don't know if it's the law or some sort of agreement or, you know, gentle person's agreement between publishing and media where they can use up ten up to 10% of the text oh. hmm. um, and, and do it that way. And it leads me into a story we had in here that the New York Times Book Review is launching a first chapter excerpt thing with reviews kind of next to it. And I think we were wondering, like, are they paying for that? Is the publisher paying for it? It could fall into this other bucket of basically authorized media usage of up to a certain percentage of the text for marketing, critical, and other sort of publicity purposes. So I thought that was really interesting, um, mm-hmm. things that we didn't know uh, about those two spots. Anything you want to say about those? I'm not sure if there's anything interesting else to say. All right. Yeah, no, I, I'm feeling confirmed, I guess, like, glad that our spidey senses were correct, that, like, there was money changing hands for sure in one direction, at least, for mm-hmm. the BBC to feature that. And I do, I think the only thing I've been thinking about with the New York Times one is that some of the reviews will be accompanied by excerpts, like, for, a, like, I've doubted, I think you've doubted forever, like, do excerpts actually make a difference? Does anyone actually care? And so uh, in the vein of, like, experiments, half-baked experiments that I wish someone would do is, like, it would be cool for publishers to identify, like, novels that they're publishing that have those, you know, those midlist novels that have zero marketing dollars. <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. um, what happens if, reviews in major publications are accompanied by excerpts or if excerpts of those books by themselves appear in major publications, does that juice sales for something that's not getting other big marketing? Because often the case is that like when you do see excerpts or yeah, early, like early peaks at things, it's the same books that are going to get a billion dollars in marketing anyway. And so it's impossible to like tease out what kind of impact that excerpt makes or not. So um, it remains like it just remains an open question to me of like, does an excerpt actually matter? Does it sell copies? Do readers care? I guess that's what I want to know from our listeners is like, will you read these excerpts that are accompanying some of the New York Times book reviews? If you happen to be reading New York Times book reviews, do you read excerpts on the internet at all? And if mm. you do, 
have you ever bought a book because of an excerpt that you encountered? So that's feedback you can send us, podcast at bookriot.com. I'm interested in that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, again, this sounds like it's something fairly nominal for the times to roll out. I mean, first chapters are now widely available online just through Amazon. You can read the first chapter of almost any book for sale on Amazon right there for free without logging in or anything. It might be that the Times gets an extra click if someone clicks on the title and it takes mm, them to mm-hmm. the excerpt. You know, maybe they know, maybe they, they're wondering if people then go over to Amazon to read the first chapter or load up their Kindle or someone else. Like, you might as well do it right here. Um, so it seems to me a fairly low friction, low risk, low reward mm-hmm. uh, kind of a thing. Even, even if, if it's a reader service, this is outside of the scope of my particular patterns. I never, ever read an excerpt before no. deciding to read a book. Isn't that weird? Does that make me weird? Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't either. Like I think I can't remember if I've said it on the show or if it was just in a conversation we were having, but like occasionally I have bought like memoirs or works of nonfiction because I came across um, a piece somebody wrote like in the New Yorker and then discovered that yeah. they had a book out and so then I buy the book. Um but I have not ever I, I don't think I've ever been like let me read the first four pages of this book this excerpt on a thing and like now i will be compelled but i also don't really read i like to go into books as blind as possible like i try not to read Mm. blurbs i tend to not even read synopses of things that like if i'm hearing from people who's either people who know my taste and are recommending me something or people whose taste is similar to mine that they loved a book i will often like just go there and try to know as little about it as possible um because yeah. I, I want to, I would rather discover it and read 50 pages on my own and be like, oh, never mind. This isn't for me, than know a lot going in, I think. I think whenever we do get around to that episode of things we wish we knew about the world of books and reading, the, the increase of conversion to people that go buy the book or check it out from the library, if they've read an excerpt, like, mm-hmm. is it, tri- are you triple as likely? Like, let's say you click on one of these excerpts from a review in the New York Times, it would stand to reason that that person is wildly more likely to go actually read the book in some format. Is that true? And if so, true to what degree? You could tell me a full range yep. of outcomes, and I would believe a full range. Like, <laughs> I would effectively, too. they're like the one that would shock me is that they're less likely to read the book after reading the excerpt, which again, actually wouldn't shock me. Um, to some degree, but that would be the most surprising one. But all the way from no difference to 20 times more likely to go um, get the book somewhere, I I would believe. I wonder, Amazon probably knows, right? If you're on the Amazon page for um, Gilead and you read the first or read any excerpt, they could probably tell your next action or your Mm -hmm. do you take any future action within the Amazon ecosystem at least to to read the book Um, yeah that's and maybe that's interesting to someone i bet amazon does know i just am feeling like you know so little about a book after the first five pages or even after the first chapter (laughs) of an average chapter length that like the best case is that it makes more it makes people more interested in the book but i think it's hard to sell anything on the first chapter yeah. I don't know. I agree with you on that. Is it that it's at all representative is a secondary concern? Yeah, right. I guess if you, for me, there's actually more friction because reading an excerpt and then go getting the book is actually means I have to pick it up twice, weirdly. Like mm. the friction for me 
is not it's not really knowing something about the book it's getting over that emotional psychological energy block of i'm now going to read a new book right once i'm in the book it's easy but reading the excerpt the getting out of the excerpt go getting the book from wherever i'm going to get it and then restarting again i just wonder what kind of excerpt is enough for for it to beat whatever other book I was going to pick up in the meantime? I'm just not sure. I like mm. you know podcastbookwrite.com. Let's know if your excerpt. Maybe we're strange. I think I think both both of us share the sense of excerpts as a thing that's out there isn't because it works necessarily well, but it's just because a thing that you can do right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. it's just you can put excerpts out there. So let's do it. It's not like they've been market tested and A B tested. And there's some other format. And this is the champion. <laughs> of all publicity things is like it's a book you got cover reveals blurbs reviews chapter excerpts and that's kind of mm-hmm. it as the long es- sort of sad story of book trailers of <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think especially in the economy of clicks an excerpt it, like an exclusive excerpt especially is a thing that a publicist can offer a publication as like get this exclusive excerpt the publication can make a big deal about how they have the excerpt the author can make a big deal about here's where you can go to read the excerpt and the publication can get right. more clicks like i understand why a publication would put an excerpt out because you probably get the click from the person who's marginally interested in what this thing is do they actually read the full excerpt like does anybody fully read much of anything on the internet um hmm. is I think, doubtful. And then if they do read the full excerpt, does it lead to some sort of sale? I think is like, I really am very doubtful that it's a direct line there um, in very many cases at all from this was a great excerpt and now I'm going to immediately buy the book. But yeah, it's one of those things that like it exists so we can do it and it plays into the sort of like economy of favors that exists between people who publicize books and people who cover books of like, here's a thing I could give you. And by the way, while I'm giving you this excerpt, I'm also getting exposure from your platform to my author. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, next story. God dang it. Um, it comes from Leander, Texas. A library director there lost their job for hosting the Pride Storytime. There's a link on bookriot.com. It's a very fine website. I'll put this in the show notes, bookriot.com. Listen, um, Priscilla Donovan will be leaving November 1st, following a second attempt to host a Pride Storytime on October 12th. Tried the first one in June. Um, the first event occurred in June, but that wasn't the first time there's been one. Um, the Luander City Council voted to end library room rentals in August as a way of keeping them from happening, and that uh, un- programs aimed at children under age 17 will now require their presenters to undergo background checks if they're not run by the library themselves, and programs that deemed, quote-unquote, divisive could be disallowed. Um, this is terrible. I hate this. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else to say. This is, I believe, the same library system where the drag queen story time had been protested like significantly, um, and then moved out of the library into a church. um, And that event was hosted by the church and by a group. um, And then the library, like the library had backed up a drag queen story time and said, like, we will do room rentals to whoever in the community. So the city council ended, as you said, the library room rentals in a way to try to get around that. And I believe that this was also the same place where it had turned out that one of the performers in the drag queen story time had something, had a, had like an offense in their background that 
potentially posed a risk to children. And so then they did have to add in background checks for anyone coming into the library who Mm. doesn't work for the library to do programs like this has just been embattled in this part of Texas for a long time. But someone losing their job over wanting to host a pride story time is the headline. And that's not a good one. So apparently this library has been managed by a third party library systems and services. This is not something I know about. Um, So I need to do some research, but the mayor considered the story time insubordination by this outside vendor. And he wants to bring the library back under direct city control. Here's a quote. Everybody needs to ask themselves if you had a boss and you went around and didn't tell them and you created a firestorm, whether if it's good, bad, or indifferent, would your boss have the right to fire you? I think most bosses would. The library staff 100% brought this mm-hmm. on our city. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm not sure I want to give it mm-hmm. m- more thinking than it deserves. But this idea that uh, equating it with a firestorm, which there's no, there's no positive like a firestorm by its nature is destructive. Like no one's like, oh, good, a firestorm. Something good is happening here. So that this mayor can't even conceive that there's controversy, but the thing that's controversial is ultimately, you don't have to agree it's good. It could be neutral, could not care. Like this is a thing libraries do. Some people don't like it, some people don't. But by characterizing it as a firestorm, it frames it in such a way that there is no defense of it mm-hmm. because there's no, of course you don't want firestorms. Right. Well, is it a firestorm? Is it a disagreement? Is it oppression that just happens to be uncomfortable and disruptive? Calling a firestorm elides all of the complexity, um, of which actually I don't think there's much here. Um, I think you're just a homophobe um, or yeah, at least I... biased in ways that are you know pretty obvious. But I, I thought that framing of this thing is just bad to happen. Protests are bad. I guess well, a, and the it's, controversy is well, bad. And, that's, and that's the thing. It's not even, I don't think he's even saying protests are bad, but like the city has had to spend $20,000 on security because protesters were coming like from out of state to, to, pick yes. it, to pick it drag queen story time. And it has cost the city, it's cost the county money to protect the library in those situations. Like, but the mayor here is saying that the problem is the library and the library. If the library just wouldn't do this thing, then we wouldn't have these protesters that we're having to spend security dollars on. And that is a pretty clear indication of what this mayor's values and priorities are. So I guess it's real victim blaming, right? Yeah. Super victim blaming. If you live in Leander, Texas, um, you have an opportunity, presumably in November to cast some votes for some people in your community. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that you can consider. Um, anything else to say about that particular one, Rebecca? I, I hate it that I, we I, keep I wanna, having to talk I want to tell people these. about it, but I, I hate to, to dwell on it, I guess, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that covers all of the major points of what's happening there. Um, I mm-hmm. sure hate it that it's a story we have to keep talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's do a break and we'll come back. Okay back from our break. It's so weird. We have these dynamic ads inserted, like we go record them outside, then bring them back just for flexibility and we'd get the names right and everything. So when I say we're taking a break, it's like a one second pause and we continue. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm feigning breaks. I don't know if people can hear that in, in my voice. We have had no break. We didn't go get to walk around and drink coffee. We're just still sitting here like we were one second ago. So life is hard. Um, I guess this is our 
big story of the week, though it touches on something we've been talking about, also something that we're even more inexpert in than normal. Um, the American Library Association delivered a written report to the House Judiciary Committee telling lawmakers that abuse, quote-unquote, by dominant actors in digital markets is impeding essential library activities. Um, with that slug line to this piece on Publishers Weekly, you might think this is largely about Macmillan, which Macmillan is mentioned in the report, but only kind of in passing. And the the single, I think, um, example of abuses in pricing was actually from a Simon & Schuster title. Um, the Code Breakers by David Kahn was quoted for $59.99 as the ebook for a consumer purchase which means lifetime access. By contrast, the price to libraries for the very same ebook was two hundred thirty nine ninety nine for one copy, and only lasts two years. Um, which that book was a strange choice to me because the the ebook price for consumers was sixty bucks. Like, what is that book? Was weird. Maybe one that's a little closer to home was All the Light We Cannot See. Mm-hmm. Priced as an ebook as twelve ninety nine cons- consumers. The library price is fifty one ninety nine for two years, or five hundred dollars for twenty years for one copy um, that says delaying or denying or delaying new content libraries certainly is a market failure. Also prevents libraries from accomplishing their democratizing mission of providing equal access to information to American citizens. But that's, that's at the end of bullet point one. It's not really about um, uh, Macmillan. In fact, Amazon gets a larger slug than Macmillan does mentioning some of the authors that we said that you, you can't get through libraries Mindy Kaling, Dean Koontz, Mark Sullivan, some of their things, ranks as the fifth largest publisher for ebooks by dollar sales. Mm. Publisher, not platform. That's just publisher, which I don't think that's a stat I had seen before. Um, some We've had some pushback on whether or not Amazon is a publisher. I'm not sure. I think it's pretty well settled for me, but in this case, the ALA is saying they're a publisher, so um, to use their own definition they are. But there's a whole section on streamed content. And then a whole multiple sections on academic and research content and scholarly publishing, which is something outside of our purview here. We tend not to talk about textbooks or academic publishing, but it sounds like there are the problems are as bad, if not worse. They're largely, I think, because for many scholarly journals, many if not most, libraries writ large are the single buyer. There is no commercial market like there is for all the light we cannot see. Selling into libraries is the business of these particular units. So is that a monopsony when there's, there's, there's a monopoly when there's one seller and it's a monopsony when there's one buyer. Um, in this case, it's maybe a little bit of column A and column B, but it's mm-hmm. led to, it looks like to some, I don't know, um, quirks, quirks is too strong, but to some, let's just say there are insufficiencies or injustices in the market. Um, what is your takeaway from this? I thought it was interesting. I'm not sure it it helps me too much. I, do, I, do I do I feel differently about the issue before or after this? I'm not really sure, Rebecca. I, do you feel differently after reading this about anything? I don't think I feel differently about... Mm, no, I don't feel differently about any of it. It's I'm glad that it's as... like Robust isn't the word that I want, but I'm glad there are as as many different... like as many different publishers and sources of content mm. mentioned as there are, because like that's the thing that has felt weird about what's been going on with, um, 
with libraries and specific library systems and the Macmillan complaint is that feels incomplete to me to make it just about Macmillan when the Macmillan thing I think is actually like the straw that breaks the camel's back of libraries have been dealing with screwy ebook terms from a lot of vectors for a long time. And this Macmillan policy, I think, was just the moment they were like, you know what, we've had it. <laughs> and now we're going to boycott something yeah. because it's time to take some action. And I completely, un- like on a human level, I completely understand hitting that place where you're like, this is the last thing and I will not tolerate right. here, this here thing. Here's the line. You know what? I just found it. Now right, I'm standing yeah. on this Now line. I have I discovered understand. the line and I'm going to go after the thing that made me cross the line. But this, like the ALA report that has gone to the House Judiciary Committee, shows some more reflection of like, oh, we have found the line. And now we have looked back at all of the things that brought us to this point, all the other straws on the camel's back. Um, And that to me is, I think that's encouraging. It sounds like this really is something that needs to be looked at. And if it's going to be looked at, it needs to be examined in a full, like in a comprehensive way. And that means looking at more than just Macmillan. And um, I think specifically, platforms that are also publishers, whether it's Netflix making their own movies and TV shows or Audible and Amazon producing their own books, ebooks and audiobooks to to make available under exclusive things like those should be part of this conversation. How does access to that material get democratized? Um, Because those are items they are creating and publishing and putting that out on their own platforms. I think you can be both a publisher and a platform. Um, I'm glad yeah. to see this be um, a full-throated, looks pretty comprehensive statement. Like We are more inexpert in this than in many other areas, as you've said. So I'm sure there are possibly things mentioning, and I'm positive that there are parts of this that we don't grok or just don't have the context for but i'm glad to yeah, see that right. it's i'm glad to see that it's not like one data point this is many data points and it does look like something that should be taken seriously so i hope it will be it's kind of like when you get into a fight with your significant other and it's about a particular thing but yeah. then whoosh all this other stuff <laughs> comes like, along that feels like, <laughs> germane and maybe it is but it's just been sitting there you know, just right. waiting like, for the 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 a little hole in the dam to come crashing mm-hmm. through, and like, and you know what? There's <laughs> you, this thing. Yeah, <laughs> you put the forks in the dishwasher the wrong way, and you've been doing it for years. And also, <laughs> you never listen to me. Like uh, that's somehow related to the forks, but and maybe it also should be addressed. But it's kind of not about the forks in that particular right. moment. Right. Um, you know the. I, I just am now realizing it by looking at this on the page. So this example of All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr, priced as 13 bucks for consumers. The library price is $52 for two years for one copy. So that mm-hmm. is presented to this report as evidence of unfairness. Like clearly that one is a lot more. I wonder, I don't have any, what sh- should the, are they arguing that the library price should be 13 bucks? Or that it's just, tr- it's quadruple. Like, I, I guess I don't know. I'm sure the libraries would like it to be at least as cheap as an ebook for consumers. But a library lets, how many people are going to check that book out over two years? Probably, is it $600 worth for two years for 20 years? Or I'm sorry, for two years is 60 bucks. Will 30 people read it at the cost of $2 per read? Like, what's the X I'm solving for? I'm still not exactly sure. Like, what would a library think is a reasonable charge Per checkout, you know, amortized over the life of a con- of a license for a particular copy. Because I, I don't have a sense of it. Do they think it should be the same? Do they would they be happy with thirty nine ninety nine versus fifty two 
dollars. Because I really don't have a way of saying, it's not the same thing because I'm not going to lend out my ebook to 30 people. Maybe it should be the, I just, I don't have, as you can hear it in my voice, I'm not even, I'm not even sure what, if I was the, if if I was the lawmaker here reading this, right, saying, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, so we should make a law saying that um, publishers can only charge libraries 110% of the cons- I, I don't even know. Do you have a sense of it at all? I have no sense. I really no. would love one of our librarian listeners to let us know, like, what would be considered the fair price? Is it libraries paying the same price for a copy that will be loaned out multiple times as one consumer would pay for a copy they bought mm-hmm. to keep on their shelves? Um, or is some multiplier acceptable, but not four times like what where is this maybe there's a principle for this that existed with print books that doesn't exist yet with ebooks like i feel like it's taken as read that you know to buy a hardcover edition of a book for a library there is a multiplier on that one copy of the book against what a consumer would pay for it brand new Mm -hmm. um but i don't know how to account for that both that digital things work differently than actual physical items yeah right that's right yeah, and what that multiplier would be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have no sense of like what what the librarians would consider fair or what principle is applied to non-digital items that could maybe be carried forward. And if it's not carried forward, then how do you modify it? Because it's not print, it's digital. Yeah. And it seems to me that the issue, the one of the <laughs> issues, and I'll just put it in prose, is something like, what do we expect publishers to make available to libraries at what cost mm-hmm. and to how and to what degree do we expect them to think of libraries as kind of a, an investment or a loss leader or do we are we okay with publishers making a profit from sales to libraries. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. do, do, do we expect publishers to participate in the library system and charge money, but not to recoup exactly what they would get by just having everything be sold on the open market? But libraries are good in general. Libraries are good for reading. What's good for reading is ultimately what's good for, you know, it's planting seed corn of a certain kind. Or is it more like McDonnell Douglas selling F-35 to the Pentagon, where it's actually a huge profit center? I think most of us think of it as somewhere in the middle. It's not mm-hmm. just a loss leader, um, but it's also not, it shouldn't be super lucrative. Um, so I feel like I'm wanting to have my cake and eat it too. Like make a little <laughs> bit of money, but not too much. Uh, I want to impact your business, but not too much. And maybe that Goldilocks position means I'm in, in no person's land um, on this particular, and my, my understanding is certainly on no person's land. But the the full report is interesting. Do you know, was this precipitated? It happened awfully quick after Macmillan. I'm trying to, I, I couldn't really quick see, like, was it, was it, is it happenstance? Um, I don't know. And that the Macmillan piece got rolled into it. I couldn't figure out from this article how much was time, was the Macmillan thing a, a catalyst even for this larger report? Or being yeah, asked for and like, the Macmillan thing has been going on for a few months um, as a thing that yeah. publishers have or as a thing that libraries have been upset about. So that's long enough to get wrapped in. Certainly. I don't know um, when the ALA began, you know, planning this or what precipitated that. It's unclear. Oh, I see the link now say Jerry Nadler uh, from New York 
in June launched a bipartisan investigation to competition in digital markets. This there's a link in the link. Mm. To, this is from the House Judiciary page. It doesn't name any company by name and nor any particular initiative. Um, so whether or not it was specifically um, precipitated by the McMillan changes or that was one of the straws, uh, which collectively precipitate this, I don't know. But it looks like it's been something looking from the very top down. Um, okay. The committee's investigation will focus on three main areas, documenting competition problems in digital markets, examining whether dominant firms are engaging in anti-competitive conduct, and assessing whether existing antitrust laws, competition policies, and current enforcement levels are adequate to address these issues. Um, I wonder what the competition problem means. I'd yeah, be curious know. to... I'd be curious to hear what the, I don't know enough about most, most anything, but that especially is like, that seems awfully wide ranging, which is fascinating for us, but, um, can't be more specific than that. Okay. Yeah. Let us know, um, what, what, what we don't know that might be relevant to pass on to, uh, to listeners of the show. Where do you want to go next, Rebecca? Got it. You want to keep, mm. just chug on down the line or do you have Yeah, one let's, you, you know. We should make sure since we're getting, you know, down into our last segments of the show, we got to follow up on the booker. So let's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's continue. Tell, okay, tell, give me the, give me the, give me the, tee this one up for us. All right. So the Times Literary Supplement this week published a functionally an op-ed by Sam Jordison. Um, he and his wife are the publishers of the book Ducks Newburyport by Lucy Ellman, which was one of the titles shortlisted for the booker, which now, as we know, infamously was divided, even though the rules prevent the booker from being divided between two winners, one of whom was Margaret Atwood. And the piece is like, this is a long piece about the experience of publishing the book, about how exciting it is to be a small publisher who um, is able to get a book on the shortlist for the booker and how there are considerable expenses that go along with that, including giving between five and six thousand pounds um, to the Booker Foundation because you're on the short list, um, which I'm not. Ex- I don't know the details of how that works, but there is money involved. Um, that you know, we that he says we signed up for this game. We knew that this was going to be happening. We were very excited, and then that um, their experience in finding out about what had happened with the Booker going to both Margaret Atwood and Bernadine um, Evaristo was that when the announcement was made, the, oh, now I can't find the name of the guy. The guy who was making the announcement about the booker says something like, we have two books, Peter Florence, we have two books that we can't give up. And uh, so this writer, Jordison, is saying like, well, so what about the other books? Are they disposable? Um, And like, that's... That's maybe not like obviously you're not disposable. Like you made it onto the Booker shortlist. Yeah, they put um, you on the shortlist. Calm down. But, but <laughs> he raises, I think he raises some interesting points and in, like that publishers, you know, submit titles to prizes to be considered there. Like you, if you're on the shortlist, you've got to pay money to the Booker. And that functionally, he's saying that the Booker Prize Committee did not act in good faith by violating the rules that they have, um, saying that the prize can't be divided, and then dividing it anyway. And then the way that they sort of casually announced that this was happening um, has harmed his trust functionally in the Booker Prize 
and belief that uh, that the process was fair um, and done in good faith. I think like I keep coming back to like it just feels to me like um, the Booker Prize people maybe thought they were doing what was best. I believe that they had the best intentions. Sam Jordison here is saying, you know what, this didn't feel like it came out in good faith. It's violated our trust. And I think that's a really important part of this. Like I got mm-hmm. I got all the way heated up last week about Bernadine Evaristo having to share the prize with Margaret Atwood. And I stand by all of that. But outside of those principles, the bigger picture of what you're doing when you say these are the rules for how we're going to do this thing, if you make it onto the short list, here's what you've got to pay us. If you're submitting to be considered, here's how much it costs and here's how the process will work. Like when you're asking people to participate in your process and you're telling them how the process is going to go and that ultimately the expectation is there will be one winner and that winner will get this much money and this kind of recognition and all these things. And then you just decide to break the rules that should make people question the faith that they can have in the process. And I think Jordison, um, there's a lot of really very understandable personal feeling and personal hurt in this piece. And I think that weakens some of it weakens the argument that he's ultimately making, but the core of it, that by doing this, the way that by doing it, and then by doing it the way that they did it, the Booker prize shook the public's, foundational trust in the prize as a thing. Um, And I think that's an important point. I certainly feel that way. Yeah. I mean, the stuff about the particular language used about the tie feels a little sour grapesy, which Mm -hmm. I can understand. This is a small publisher with a book that has a real chance and an author that's been working hard, doing interesting things for a long time. And they were on the cusp of a breakthrough. To, to get the Booker Prize would be a real breakthrough. So the stakes for them were extremely high. Um, and the one title on the shortlist, that wasn't a PRH title. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's it's really a David and Goliath situation. And in this situation, the David, that $5,000 fee means a lot more to their entry than it does oh, to PRH. Yeah. All, all of them put together. And so there's a part of it where the stakes are... Um, uh, dissimilar, you know, they're they're so dissimilar that it can feel unfair. But the central thing is like it's a, a prize for a, an individual book when you're not supposed to take in the author's larger body of work into consideration. That's a thing that that is the text. Mm-hmm. That's not the subtext. Right. That is the text. And then having judges saying after the fact about like how do you you know take Atwood's full career in the Handmaid's Tale against you know this other author uh, Evaristo? How, how do you figure that out? In Ron Charles, I think there's a piece that he said, you don't. You're not supposed yeah. to do that. You're supposed to take the book on the book, which I don't know if it's reasonable to ask that. I, that's a, almost a separate question. Like, should that be the guideline? Because how can you mm. read the Testaments without the shadow of The Handmaid's Tale? I don't know how you can. You have to have not read The Handmaid's Tale, which is also kind of a weird yeah. precondition of judging and, it. That's maybe a separate question. But the idea is like they were explicitly saying in public that they were doing a right. thing they're not supposed to. Right. That, yeah. that, that, that's crazy making. It is. The direct quote from Afua Hirsch, um, who, who wrote that she, in The Guardian, she wrote that she was proud of the way the judges had reached their decision is, quote, how do you judge the Titanic career, the contribution of culture, the contribution to culture of Margaret Atwood? And... Like, that's not even just about the testaments and that the testaments requires 
the context of The Handmaid's no. Tale. That's explicitly about Margaret Atwood's career. And the Booker Prize is not a like career-wide or lifetime achievement award. Not to mention that this is disingenuous in the first place. Like there's a new Margaret Atwood book every hand like there's a new Margaret Atwood novel every handful of years. It has not been that yeah. long since the last one. And assuming that she continues to be in good health, it will probably not be that long until another one. Like the Booker Prize has had opportunities to award it to Margaret Atwood and very likely would have opportunities to award it to her again. Like the Testaments, I think only merits consideration for the prize. If you're looking at the cultural contribution that is connected to the handmaid's tale, like the Testaments, the Testaments as a text by itself is not a prize winning book. Just like if you put it next to the books that have won the major literary awards for the last bajillions of years, it's just not there. And to to have made this decision was a bad call to have like gone against the stated rules that like the stated guideline well rules the stated rules for how the decision is to ma- be made was a bad call but then to feel fine rolling around in public talking about like that it's explicitly about the cultural contribution of her career and not about the text of the testaments as a standalone project it, like that is crazy making and yeah. that uh, that the folks at the Booker Prize don't seem to realize they made a mistake is a problem. I think I said last week, like either they realize they made a mistake and they don't care or they're clueless. And I can't decide which is worse, but I think that being clueless in this case is worse. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is worse because I think it'd be one thing if you knew you made a mistake and that, because that suggests you understand that it needs to be fixed. If you don't even make a mistake, right. then the meta confidence in the system is shaken. Right. Right. I like, can make which... a mistake with you and be a jerk, and you're like, but you know, I said the right things. I can prove through future actions that I le- I've learned from it. I know, that, that it's that's an anomaly, right? To some degree, this suggests this is not idiosyncratic. This is systemic. They're not supposed to be able to give two prizes, and yet they did. So right. what is? That's not a rule. It's not even a guideline. It's just sort of. Guys, if you don't mind while you're judging, we don't want to give out two. And like, well, we're going to give out two. And then yeah. the Booker structure has no capability to say, you know what? No. Did, 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 did the Booker ever prize people say to the judge, how much resistance do they put up to this idea of giving two? And there's a one point where the judges overheard them talking about the careers and they said they tried to intervene. Well, the cat's kind of already out of that. Mm-hmm. I understand it's difficult, but like, to throw your hands up and say, well, the, you know, the judges just do what they're going to do, do like that, that questions the system because there is no system. Right. How can like, you trust who's, the system if there is no system? Right. Who's ultimately accountable for making sure that the rules get followed is a question. And right. like it, it raises the question. I think the thing that's really dangling for the future is like, well, then which rules will they feel free to change in the future or to violate in the future? Right. Like if I publish a book in 2020 that gets nominated for the Booker Prize, why should I believe that the prize, that the uh, committee process will be as it is stated? Because we already know that, well, that's not, that doesn't stick. It could be whatever. Right. I guess. And, I mean... and then what other ways could it be <laughs> different like mm-hmm. next year will they decide to give it to three what if what if it, once you make it on the short list we're just going to divide it by five like everybody everybody who's nominated gets a prize like or it, no award you know or, we, these right, are all no this, these are we just get rid of them all they all we didn't like any of them zero 
I don't think that's what the Booker Prize wants either. Right. Like, I don't know how, I don't know the, you know, the inner workings of how the Booker Prize committee is set up. Like, I've been on boards for organizations and those boards have executive directors that are staff members. Like, those organizations have executive directors that are staff members. And the board can vote to do some things and have some power, but there's a check and balance where the executive director of the organization can say, like, actually, this thing the board is trying to do is not within the board's purview, or actually the bylaws of the organization prevent us from doing this thing. And the ED's job is to, or part of the ED's job is to have the sustainability of the organization in an ongoing fashion in mind. Like, is there a similar person on staff at the Booker Prize who whose job it was to say, this cannot happen? Our rules state that this cannot happen. And like, did that person fail to put their foot down? I- yeah, I don't know. And I don't I don't have a good suggestion for let's say let's say there was an exec, the executive director or whatever sitting in the 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 deliberations and someone says, you know, I think I, I you know, Atwood has a long career and if they say that and it then becomes in the air of the room even though it's not supposed to I'm sympathetic to that's a very difficult you can't that's not a cat you can put back in the bag. Right. I guess all you can do is kind of like in a trial when something is struck down as inadmissible, even though the jury's already heard it and the jury's instructed not to take that into account. But at least you can say that we strongly dis- like if this person came out afterwards, say, you know, how do you do the fact? They could strongly say, you know what? That is not supposed to be a part of it. We strongly disagree with that characterization of how this was given. Right. She's not going to be invited back for judging. I mean, you, you could at least make a strong mm-hmm. statement as like, this didn't operate as we wanted to, and we're unhappy about it, but it was all, it was just very like, I don't know. There's something also about, so like benignly evil, evil is wrong, benignly chummy about the whole thing. Yeah. That I think also contributes to the tone of um, Sam Jordison's piece. Yes. Like, you know what? If it's not fair, let's not do lip service to the fairness. Just call it what it is. Yeah, it um, seems it like was, it, it wasn't rigged, but it wasn't fair. Just admit it. Don't pretend it's something other than it is. Yeah, it seems like it didn't enter the the Booker Prize committee's minds that this would be perceived as a problem by anyone. Like they're certainly not right. rolling out with any sort of offensive mover maneuvers to be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, hey, we know that this was off book and. And like, just in case you're worried or you think it's unfair, here are some, here are some things. It just, it seems to me like they didn't anticipate that there would be objection at all. I hope that right. there's a lot of people doing a lot of sitting and considering and reflecting on how they could have done things differently <laughs> over at the Booker Prize. <sighs> yeah, me too. Okay. I think we have one more sponsor and then we got a couple of uh, smaller right. things to do and we'll get out of here. Okay, let's do casting stuff. Yes. I am excited about both of these. Good. Which one you, I'm, which one are you most excited about? You can you have the first draft picked of two. I'll take okay. whatever your leavings are for Well, I know what you're going to I'm pick, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny because these are connected by a show that we both loved, um A Halt yes. and Catch Fire, but That's right. I'm, I didn't think about that. Yeah, they are. Uh-huh. They are. So I'm excited that Mackenzie Davis has been cast as one of the lead roles in HBO Max's production of Station Eleven in the series adaptation, the book Mm. by um, Emily St. John Mandel. She'll be co-starring with Himesh Patel. But I'm mad because now I actually am going to have to pay for HBO Max in order to watch them. Station Eleven. 
I was trying to think of what's going to get me because you're into Succession, and that's to be on that's on HBO. It's on HBO. I, I don't know Normcore HBO. That's not yeah. HBO Max. It's Norm, and this is going to be on HBO Max. Um, so you you got to upgrade, I guess, mm-hmm. to get to this one. I'm not on any HBOs right now, so the oh. friction for me is strong. Oh well, but I think if you get HBO Max, you will also get the stuff that's on HBO Go. It's just that if you're in no, the but you're but you're got to be upsold like four bucks, where I got to be upsold the full like twenty. Oh, I guess right. I'm okay, got you know, it. I'm going zero to twenty. You're going you're going fifteen. I'm just making up numbers, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, the same name, um, as always. My, here's you know my big concern about these, O'Neill's Razor. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? How, what am I signing up for here? This is a ten episode limited series launching in spring 2020, which is quick. But if it's awesome, is it really going to be limited? If I knew it was going to be limited and it's only 10 and it's just the book, I think what I would do is not sign up for HBO, but like do the season pass on iTunes or something. Mm. I would do that for this. What I'm worried about is a Handmaid's Tale situation where now you're four seasons in and you're pot committed um, or you give it up halfway through. I'm just, I, I, I'm on, you're, you're hearing me be kind of over the, open-ended commitment to mm-hmm. TV shows of indefinite length. I'm kind of over that. Yeah, but I'm I, in for a 10-episode limited series for sure. I am for sure in for this. I need to believe it's going to be just these 10 episodes um, for the O'Neill's Razor yeah. reasons, but also I think the book does what it does very well and can be done in a 10-episode series. I want to... I want to see that, but I'm mad that they cast someone I like so much because now I'm actually going to like, I'm gonna, I was like, do you wanted them to cast like Johnny Depp and, uh, no. yeah, I wanted them to cast someone I wasn't excited about. Cause then I could at least wait until it came out and I could hear like read reviews and hear the buzz or the lack of buzz and decide like, I'm going to go, I'm in for Mackenzie Davis. So that's happening. And yeah. that's, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. So That's the other news, Lee Pace, who was, I get Mackenzie Davis and Lee Pace were the two, they were the leads of Halt and Catch Fire, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, Scoot, Mc, Scoot was kind of the, th- well, no, there's four leads. Yeah, Scoot McNary. I think of them as the two and, leads because yeah. they had the romantic interest and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But if you haven't watched Halt and Catch Fire, it's all over. O'Neill's Razor's complete. It's not as long. It's it, There's multiple seasons, but there's not a billion of them. It's, it's really good. Man, yeah. Um, Lee Pace and Jared Harris, who you... People probably know as um, oh dang it! What it's was his name? Since Mad, since Mad, 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 Mad Men, yeah, he's one of the British ad guys oh. on Mad Men. Lane Lane yes. Price, um, in Mad Men, they're going to be the two leads or two of the leads in the Apple TV Plus. That's the name of the, mm-hmm. the premium TV service. Um, Foundation by Isaac Asimov, which. I think is four books. It's been a while since I've read it. So O'Neill's Razor on the books is complete. I haven't figured out if the books are complete and the CV hasn't started, does it fulfill O'Neill's Razor? I need like a subparagraph B or something <laughs> about it. Um, so anyway, Harris will star as Harry Seldon, a mathematical genius who predicts the demise of the empire. So that's the mule for those of you who remember. And Pace will star as Brother Day, the current emperor of the galaxy. So they're the the major antagonists. Um, they're, I love both of these people mm-hmm. as actors. I think they're both crossing the Mad Men and Halt and Catch Fire streams is very, very much something I'm yep. interested in here. Um, my brother Kyle, who is listening and editing the show, um, 
is one of his favorite series too, and I know he's looking at this with uh, uh, very. And it, this is just getting started. It's going to be an epic series. It's got, not going to be out for a while. But this could be really good. Yeah. This could be really, really good. The Foundation series is one of those gaps in my reading history. I've never mm. read it. And I don't know that this rises to the level of like, I'm going to read the Foundation series before this show comes out. But I'm going to care about Isaac Asimov long enough to watch the first season of this yeah. and see what I think. Because like as one of our contributors said on Slack this week, like I would watch a show that was just watching Lee Pace watch paint dry. Like He's so compelling. And... I'm into yeah, yeah, I'm into this. He's just so compelling. Um I'm willing to give this a shot. I think for me it's also like the books are done as long as with Station 11 and this. If things are communicated in a timely fashion that they are going to continue beyond the universe of the book or not, I will decide right. like um I was diehard Breaking Bad, but I have decided not to watch the new Breaking Bad oh, Netflix really? movie. Yes, huh. because it's been long enough. Like that story is closed in my head. Like, and at least in the way of like I, I have, I was happy with how it ended. It left open things that I was happy with it being with having those things left open. And I've just heard enough of like this movie, like revisits your characters that you love, but also answers some questions that. Could have, that were previously unanswered, and I'm like, it's, I don't need all the answers. It's fine. But if they're going to do more Station Elevens, like, tell me mid season of the first season that there's more coming, so I can prepare my heart. Don't wait. Don't wait six years. Um, I'm sorry. Um, I'm confusing my characters. Harry Seldon and the Mule are different characters ah, in Foundation. Okay. For those of you people that know, and to say more would be to to verge on spoilers. Mm. So, uh, I'm not going to get into. Okay. It I'm excited for these. Probably. I've now lost track of the adaptations, frankly. <laughs> so I can't think of what I'm more excited to see than either of these two, but nothing jumps to mind mm. right now. Probably the soonest mind. one that I'm really excited about is the Little Fires Everywhere Hulu series, but I think yeah. that starts at early 2020. I'm just curious right. about that. I'm really glad to see Celestine get it, but um, in terms of like casting, and what I'll be mm-hmm. anticipating. I'm just going to be sitting here being cranky about the money I haven't spent yet, but will have to spend on HBO Max. <laughs> you know, um, this is an Apple show, and I meant to put this in the notes because I saw this this news item come across that might be um, relevant to some people out there, that if you are an unlimited Verizon customer for your data plan, they're going to give you the first year of Apple TV Plus for free. Interesting. So that's something to keep an eye out for. You can sample some of the stuff. I'm looking forward to, uh, we kind of, well, I think it's fair to say we bagged on the the the, the Emily Dickinson show for <laughs> Apple Plus TV Plus. But I've looked at the trailers. Like the For All Mankind show looks pretty cool. Like the Elephant Queen documentary about this family of elephants. I'm mm. sure my kids and I will watch while Michelle Michelle and I quietly sob <laughs> about the elephant mother taking care of her baby oh, elephants. No. Some of it looks pretty interesting, um, but for free, if it I don't know that the foundation's gonna be out in a year, so I don't know. Mm. Um and then on the that's the Apple Plus, and on the Disney Plus side, I, I I'm going to buy that just because of the Mandalorian. I I just am going to I'm just going to I don't have a choice. I'm a forty something dude. <laughs> yep. Like this is just a tax on being my age and coming from the <laughs> pop culture world in which I came from. Like it's not even up to me um, at this point. So interesting casting news. We haven't done casting in a while. I think we, we had some you, fatigue, but these things broke through our bubble of care. Yeah, it's, it's usually awesome. we just usually don't care enough, but this was straight to the wheelhouse of 
Yes. Uh, well, to our shared wheelhouse for sure to have Mackenzie Davis and Lee Pace in one week get cast in adaptations of things we like too. HBO they do their shows um, doing they do them weekly, right? Have they ever mm-hmm. have, do, have they ever done an all at once drop? Has that is that something that HBO's I, done before? I don't think so. They do uh-huh. the limited like miniseries will be you know three three hour things over the course of three weeks um, or succession is weekly on Sunday nights for 10 weeks. Like they do them in yeah. seasons, but I don't, I don't think they've ever just dropped a whole season of something. Um, okay. Just curious. I, I don't know if that increases or decreases my interest in the show, but I, I feel like it alters it. If I know it's going to be stranger things or, mm. or a game of Thrones, like that cadence. Yeah. Well, there's for some reason, but I don't there's know always why. the option of just waiting until all the episodes have aired and then watching them, which is what I've been doing with yeah. like, I waited for succession and just, I watched the entire first season like last week and I'm almost done with season two now, but though I have to say, anyway. I, there's haven't been that many shows where I've gone the other way where you go from like dropping all at once to weekly, but the great British baking show did that this year. Mm, and mm-hmm. so we're watching them every Friday and it's a little frustrating because we were used to watching them. But on the other hand, I kind of like it. I do too. I kind of like get getting, one, you don't have a choice. You, you look forward to it all week. I kind of yeah. like that. Rebecca. I like it too. I'm I've been getting up on Friday mornings. Like, Oh, I can have my coffee with the great British bake off today. Oh, you're watching it. Are you all caught up? I mean, mm-hmm. not today's episode, clearly. Who do you yeah, think Yeah, well, I, I watched the first, like, 30 minutes of today's episode this morning. Um, oh, okay. Who okay. do I think is going to win? I'm not sure. I think it's going to be, what is her name? I can't remember their names. Um, Steph? Yes. Yeah. I think it's going to be Steph. I think she's Steph. the best. I think That's she has our, a good our shot. Our household thinks it's Steph, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess one of our bonus episodes could be a, a fandom. I still... I haven't read the piece I want to read about what the hell it is about the Great British Baking Show I like. Maybe that's what I want all pieces to be. Why do I like the thing <laughs> I like? I'll read the snot out of any piece like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is one where I'm, I, I have a sense of it, but like, what are the, what's the close read of why I like this show? Mm. I, still, I still can't put my finger on it. Um, anyway, that's... Uh, that's yeah, I have show. some theories about that, but we'll save oh, it for ahead. another episode. No, no, give me your top level. One, give me oh. one sentence about why, why we like it. Why do we like that show so much? I think we like it for a couple of reasons. One, that like there's really not stakes. It's not like you're not fighting yeah. for a jillion dollars. It's just uh, like, well, this is straight out of the way I view things. Like these are just people who care very much about doing something very well for the sake of doing it very well. Like they're not trying to win a hundred thousand dollars. They just want to do the thing well and be recognized. And it's not like it's the opposite of cutthroat, crazy American reality TV. They all are like supportive of each other. They're happy for each other and their successes. They're sad for each other when like a cake falls or bad things happen and stuff melts. It's just very like it feels very human and warm and because there's low stakes it's not stressful at all it's just like look at these humans doing this thing purely for the purpose of making something and enjoying making something well and not like they're competing but just a little you're not competing for actually anything other than recognition and they're also happy for each other it's just i just love it on a like human level in the world of media that's about entertainment. I'm not sure there are moments that are weirdly more moving to me than when someone's had a disaster and everyone else in the tent go rushes over yeah. to try to help them. I, I don't, yes. the stakes are low, but still I find it extremely moving. And some of it is such a, it's such a antonym 
of how we're used to, I'm not here to make friends, like the classic reality TV she, show in America right. phrase. It's like, actually, they are here to make friends. Right. They're here to make they're... friends and Victoria's sandwiches. Not <laughs> yes, in that they're... order. <laughs> yeah, that they are competing with each other, but their ability to like be there for each other on a human level supersedes the competition of like, oh, I finished yeah. my cake early, so I can spend my extra five minutes helping you ice yours. And yeah. that the, right. you know, and that the show creators allow that to happen, I think is also lovely. Like it would probably just be on the table in most American reality TV of like no assistance between competitors. And it's so nice to see somebody be like, oh, well, I'm finished early. What, what can I do with my hands to help you here? And they'll be like, oh, you know, ice this cake or decorate those cookies. Or can you just hold this thing together while I quietly cry as I try to take my tart out of the tart pan? Like it's just mm. so, it's just lovely and supportive. Like that's the, I want to live and in the world and the B roll of, of Baby Ducks by English yeah. Dreams. I'm all I'm here for that too. <laughs> it's like the it's exactly like whenever the they way. cut to the B roll, whatever animal it is, our family's like ducks, geese, <laughs> sheep, deer. Right, there's a deer just walking around outside the tent. Yeah, yeah. it's just calming, and it like, must be the case. Yeah, go ahead. It's balm for the soul. <laughs> it must be the case that there's people on there that have hated each other. It has to be the case. They're humans. But they don't, sure. they intentionally, it's not that they, it's not like they include whatever. They intentionally leave out the, I hate, these people hated their guts and there was a fight and whatever. They, yeah. they, they cut it in such a way to make it feel more, that the stakes are there, the ten, I don't know, the care is there even if the stakes are low and the tension isn't, uh, you know, given cocaine. There's no, mm-hmm. there's none of that weird cuts and, you know, false. Yeah. Well, like, anyway, that's... I'm more into that than I thought I was going to be suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> it's Friday here on the Book Riot podcast. I know. It really is. All right. We're talking about things we like. Let's get out of here on the Hero of the Week. Yes. The Hero of the Week this week is the good folks at Patagonia. Patagonia Books announced this week that they will no longer print advanced reading copies of books that they're publishing, citing the environmental impact of the paper waste. I have so many praise hand Muppet arms for this, just so many. Like, as a person who receives more than 100 galleys a month in the mail and gives away or recycles the vast majority of them, I get to look at the paper waste that the publishing industry creates on a regular basis. It's appalling. The reason I'm giving away most of those books is that the publishing industry is sending me all kinds of things that I didn't ask for and I'm not interested in. And maybe that blanket approach to sending out galleys worked when we we didn't have digital ways to get them. And also when you were only distributing galleys to like independent bookstores and a few media outlets, but just the, mm-hmm. the amount of paper that is used to create copies of books that aren't even the finished copies is astonishing. And Patagonia has, as has always had as one of its company core principles, care for the environment and doing whatever they can to reduce waste. Um, they are moving to a new standard of 100% post-consumer recyclable paper for all of their books. Um, or no, they are encouraging the publishing industry to move to that standard. But it, they are also going to just stop printing and distributing ARCs of their books. And like, I'm sure this will mean that some bookstores will not be ordering Patagonia books because those bookstore owners are not receiving print editions of those galleys, but they're making digital editions available. And like, if you have a computer, you can read a digital edition of a book. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Like, I don't think this is really an access problem. I'm glad to see Patagonia do this. I think publishing should do it across the board. At least a significant decrease. If I never got a paper galley in the mail ever again, that would be a great move for the environment. I mean, for those of us who work around books, and I get way fewer than you do, it it does become, I know it's hard to hear for people that love books. Like, And we thought when we first started blogging, wouldn't it be great to get free books? And it is until it isn't, until you realize that it's really your time that's the resource that's scarce, not the access to books. You can go to your library. You can get, at least for, for us, we're in that fortunate position to be. But it becomes like junk mail. It really does. And mm-hmm. then there's this sort of moral weight around what you can do with galleys. Like, we're not going to go sell them, but you can't give them to your library. You can't give them to the youth bookstore because they're going to go sell them. Or like, you, you can't do this. And, and also, by the way, uh, burning books is bad, so you should feel bad when you put them in the dumpster. Like, it's, it is a weirdly small stakes catch-22 um, about what to do with review copies. And this is great. I, I think this makes all the sense of the world. Frankly, the endurance of the print review copy is a shocking thing to me. If you would have told me 10 years ago that there'd still be this volume of print galleys out there in the world, I'd, like, I'd be like, why? And I guess I still yeah. am. <laughs> I still am yeah. like, why? It's astonishing. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And Patagonia, an interesting company, um, you recommended to me the book by their founder, and I can't remember his name, let my people go Ivan Schwinnard, yeah. Schwinnard, um, which was a really interesting look into how a company that's built a little differently than many companies are and how they think about the world. Uh, so, and so I'm, I guess of the, of the companies we know at all, it's like the least surprising is Patagonia, right? <laughs> like when you, when you put this in the of, oh, of course, it's Patagonia. I'm right, and it's not still, one of they didn't do this like 1976. They stopped. Printing. <laughs> <laughs> right, if this were if we were talking about like PRH has announced that they are not printing uh, paper galleys of books, or they're decreasing their paper galleys by 85 percent or whatever, like I would not be able to be reporting on that on this show because I would have fallen out of my chair. Like it's right, you'd be in the in the good place. <laughs> yeah, suddenly, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, but glad to see Patagonia do it. I hope this will be a nudge in that direction, even if it begins with, you know, not necessarily like publisher publishers, but publishing adjacent groups or independent publishers. Um, mm-hmm. Like this is a this is a move that the industry needs to go in. There's just it's just unjustifiable how much paper is used. Yeah. Okay. So good uh, job, Patagonia. Good job, Patagonia. You can email us at podcast at bookwriter.com. You can find links um, to the stories we talked about this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookwriter.com slash listen. Um, we have another bonus episode coming out Wednesday, which there's no reason. No, we're going to talk about The Water Dancer. Yeah. The Book Club which, Club. Are you done? Are you done? N- no, I have like 50 pages left. Dancer. Yeah, I'm, I've got more than that. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> but we're excited to talk about it. You know, one of the big books of the fall. Uh, we get to we get to preview what Oprah, you know. One of the segments we're going to do is what do we hope Oprah asks, or I guess it's probably already recorded. What did we? What do we hope Oprah has asked already? But we do, I don't know. I'm in lost in tense land. Um, something like that. But if you if you're interested in burning through the water dancer in a few days. Um, in anticipation of that, great. Or if you want to save it till after you've read it, that's what's coming next. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, We'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.